This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jim Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program, Issues in Perspective. In our first perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about worldview, values, and the world economy. Over 100 years ago, a path-breaking book by the famed sociologist Max Weber was published. It was entitled, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. Among other things, Weber made a profoundly important argument about the connection between religion and economics. Where Karl Marx loathed religion as the opiate of the people, Weber maintained that the Protestant faith actually was the origin for the development of the capitalist system. In summary, Weber argued that the Calvinist doctrine of election produced believers who sought to demonstrate their elect status by engaging in commerce and the accumulation of material goods. Therefore, Protestantism created a work ethic and a system of social trust so necessary for capital formation and commerce. Obviously provocative and controversial, the Weber thesis remains relevant. Weber identified the importance of religious and theological values to worldview building and to human behavior. A civilization's worldview determines its values and therefore, to some extent, explains human behavior. Not everyone is going to agree with what Weber postulated, his thesis. There are obviously some major shortcomings today. But he raised an important question about that. Relationship between religion, values, theology, doctrine, and economic behavior. Europe today continues to use such phrases as human rights and human dignity, which are indeed rooted in the Christian values of Western civilization. But few Europeans today know why they continue to believe that such values are important. The ghost of dead religious beliefs haunts Europe, and that is very important. The Weber thesis is probably too simplistic, but it did raise an important question, as I've stated twice, now the third time, that relationship between religious values and economic behavior. They are not disconnected. They are not irrelevant. The connection between the two is incredibly important. As an illustration of such a connection, I was struck by a recent essay by the columnist David Brooks entitled The Spirit of Enterprise. Brooks asks a provocative question. Why are nations like Germany and the United States rich? He answers that it is due to habits and values and social capital. There is a simple ethical formula at work in these nations. Effort should lead to reward as often as possible. People who work hard and play by the rules should have a fair shot at prosperity, he writes. Money should go to people on the basis of merit and enterprise. Self-control, he goes on, should be rewarded, while laziness and self-indulgence should not. Community institutions should nurture responsibility 
and fairness, he concludes. But this ethical construct is being undermined in Europe, and indeed, I would argue, in the United States. People view lobbyists diverting money on the basis of connections. Traders making million off short-term manipulations in the markets. Governments stealing money from future generations to reward voters today. The overall result is a crisis of legitimacy, where social trust shrivels and effort is no longer worth it. What has happened? Over the past several decades, nations like Germany and the Netherlands in Western Europe have played by the rules. They've practiced good governance. But Brooks says they have lived within their means, undertaking painful reforms, enhanced their competitiveness, and reinforced good values. Now they are being browbeaten for not wanting to bail out nations like Greece Italy, and Spain, which did not do these things, which instead borrowed huge amounts of money that they are choosing now not to repay. Furthermore, they are defending the values, habits, and social contract upon which the entire prosperity of the West is based. Germany and the Netherlands, for example, have defended those values, those habits, and that social contract. All of this that is occurring in Europe cannot be taken lightly by the United States. The structural problems plaguing the United States economy remain unaddressed. As a result, the United States suffers from a horrible crisis of trust that is slowing growth, restricting government action, and sending our policies off in strange directions. The future of Europe, and indeed I believe strongly the future of the United States, revolves around how we answer these fundamental questions. Which values in our culture will be rewarded and reinforced? Will it be effort, productivity, and self-discipline, or will it be bad governance laziness, and self-indulgence. How we answer these questions will determine the future of the United States. We cannot ignore them. We cannot pretend that they are unimportant. The worldview, values, and ethical foundation of America are being undermined in a way we have never seen before. The very survival of our way of life, in my opinion, is now in question. How we answer these questions that I have surfaced will determine, to a great extent, the future of Europe and particularly of the United States of America. Let me shift now to the second perspective on today's program and think with you about the importance of sound doctrine and Joel Osteen. In his pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, the Apostle Paul argues very compellingly that sound doctrine, and that Greek word that we translate sound, actually means healthy doctrine, that which is conducive to spiritual life. Sound doctrine produces godly living. These two are thereby inextricably linked. 
Paul exhorts his two protégés, Timothy and Titus, to teach their people sound doctrine. This will influence how they live in society, how they relate to the state, and how they represent the Lord well in the broader culture. Superficial, shallow tidbits of religious information are not sound doctrine. Strong, expository preaching and teaching are how people learn sound doctrine. There is no other way for this to be done. Therefore, it is especially disturbing for one of the key leaders of 21st century evangelicalism to model just the opposite of what the Apostle Paul argued nearly 2,000 years ago. Why does Joel Osteen represent the shallow, superficial Christianity that is the exact opposite of what the Apostle Paul represented. Let me cite a few examples from interviews he has given to the national press. Example number one, Osteen says, part of our core message is that seasons change, and when you believe, if you don't get bitter and you don't get discouraged, you may not change overnight, but you can have peace. Second example, People need to be reminded that every day is a gift from God, and bloom where you're planted. Be happy where you are, and to make that choice to get up every day and to be grateful. Example number three is perhaps the most profound. It's not only superficial, it's not only shallow, it is doctrinally and theologically wrong. In a recent interview, Osteen said, I believe that Mormons are Christians. I don't know if it's the purest form of Christianity like I grew up with, but you know what? I know Mormons. I hear Mitt Romney, and I've never met him, but I hear him say, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he's my Savior, and that's one of the core issues. Osteen goes on, I'm sure there are other issues that we don't agree on, but you know, I can say that the Baptists and the Methodists and the Catholics don't agree on everything. So that would be my take on it. Theologian Albert Moeller has argued this. The main point of concern in Joel Osteen's latest comments on Mormonism is the lack of any biblical standard of judgment and the total abdication of theological responsibility. Moeller goes on, he relegates doctrinal disagreements between Christians and Mormons to the status of theological debates between Protestant denominations, and then includes Roman Catholicism. Comparing any form of Trinitarian orthodoxy with Mormonism is a whole other question altogether. In my judgment, Joel Osteen is a major representative of evangelical Christianity. Whether he likes that or not, he is. His comments are thereby reprehensible and theologically wrong. How can he actually say that he represents Jesus Christ? How can he claim to be a preacher of the gospel? Does he really not know what Mormons believe? Does he teach his congregation that there is no difference between Mormonism and genuine biblical Christianity? When I read that, I could not believe he was saying that, that a major evangelical leader who is on television every single week 
whose books are in the, selling in the millions. He has made a veritable fortune off of everything that he's done. But he declares publicly in a national media interview, there really is no difference between Mormonism and Christianity. Well, Joel Osteen, let me answer a question for you. What do Mormons believe about Jesus and about God as Trinity? Mormonism teaches that God the Father was once a man and became God. He has a physical body, as does his wife, the Heavenly Mother. Mormons deny the Trinity, arguing that the Father, Son, and Spirit are three separate gods. Mormonism likewise teaches that it is possible for all faithful Mormons to one day become gods, too. Mormonism also teaches that Jesus is a separate God from the Father, Elohim, and is the spirit child of the Father and Mother in heaven. Jesus is therefore the elder brother of all men spirit beings. His body was created through sexual union between Elohim and Mary. In fact, Mormonism teaches that Jesus was married as a polygamist to the two Marys and Martha. Jesus' death on Calvary's cross does not provide full atonement, but does guarantee resurrection for everyone. Furthermore, the Mormon Church actually defines salvation as an exaltation to Godhood, which can only be earned through obedience to the Mormon leaders, to Mormon baptism, to tithing, to marriage, which they believe is eternal, and secret temple rituals. Using 1 Corinthians 15.29, the Mormon Church teaches that present-day Mormons can be vicariously baptized for their ancestors, who will then be saved. For that reason, Mormons spend a great deal of time studying their family's genealogy so that they can be baptized in their place, thereby leading to their ancestors' salvation. Joel Osteen, if you had taken time to examine that, and I find it unbelievable that you did not, you could not make the claim that Mormonism and Christianity are basically the same. They are not. Mormonism is wrong theologically on every major doctrine of the church. They don't get it right with the Trinity. They don't get it right with the deity and humanity of Christ. They don't get it right in terms of who the person of Jesus Christ really is, and they don't get it right in terms of salvation. Joel Osteen, they are not the same thing. Joel Osteen magnifies the superficiality of 21st century evangelicalism. If he really does not know the difference between Mormonism and biblical Christianity, he should be ashamed of himself. He represents a Christianity light, L-I-T-E, which seeks not the gospel, but a feel-goodism, which bears no resemblance whatsoever to what Jesus taught or what Jesus commanded. As a spiritual leader, Joel Osteen should take a strong stand for sound doctrine and the distinctive theology of genuine biblical Christianity. He has not done so, and in that is his shame. In our third and final perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about the political demise of Herman Cain. Herman Cain spent part of his life in Omaha, Nebraska, where I live. Shortly after I became president of Grace University, I met with him. 
We were beginning at the university a major fundraising effort at Grace, and he was a man that I wanted to meet. We had lunch together, and we talked about his business, which was Godfather's Pizza at that time, and about his faith. At that point, Cain was attending one of the significant African-American churches in our community. I gained an incredible amount of respect for him after that luncheon meeting. He was articulate, confident, and obviously very successful. In many ways, the life of Herman Cain is a classic life of individualism, hard work, and fortitude. Cain is a graduate of Morehouse College and Purdue University. He ran a very successful company here in Omaha and then became, among other things, a significant motivational speaker. Then he decided to run for president of the United States. As you know, his campaign centered on his 999 tax reform plan, which was appealing for its simplicity and a certain degree of common sense. For a short time, he was even leading in most Republican Party polls. Then the political bottom fell out of his campaign. A series of women claimed that Cain was guilty of sexual harassment while he was leader of the National Restaurant Association. As a part of a legal settlement, the National Restaurant Association conceded that it had made significant financial payments to two of these women. Even with those revelations, Herman Cain remained a viable candidate for the presidency. But he crossed a point of political no return when Ginger White, an Atlanta woman, charged that he and she and Cain had a 13-year-long affair, one that had just ended. Some of the details are clearly un unproven. It's not quite certain exactly what had happened. To some extent, this is a he-said-she-said affair. Yet, one cannot ignore the reality that a number of women have made serious allegations about him. Indeed, Cain admitted in public that he had paid Ginger White quite a bit of money, all without his wife's knowledge or her consent. Amazingly, Herman Cain's attorney made the audacious and ridiculous claim that Cain and White's relationship, now this is a quote from Cain's attorney, quote, appears to be an accusation of private, alleged consensual conduct between adults a subject matter which is not a proper subject of inquiry by the media or the public. Kane's attorney went on, quote, No individual, whether a private citizen, a candidate for public office, or a public official, should be questioned about his or her private life. The public's right to know and the media's right to report have boundaries, and most certainly those boundaries end outside of one's bedroom. Close that quote. I could not disagree more. As Albert Moeller, the theologian, has declared, character does not end at the bedroom door. All appearances are Herman Cain has a character flaw, and these sexual escapades indicate the core of that flaw. It is the public's business whether candidates have sexually harassed women. 
it is the public's business to know whether a candidate has had a 13-year relationship with a woman, not his wife, which included significant payments of money. The question of character is indeed one of the most important issues in evaluating candidates for public office. In my judgment, Herman Cain has tragically failed the test of character, and that is very sad. Let me take this to one additional level. The New Testament, in the writings of the Apostle Paul, in a variety of different ways, makes this very clear exhortation. We are to be so circumspect, so discreet, so careful in how we live our lives, that we do not even give the appearance of evil. Herman Cain claims to be a believer in Jesus Christ. That's what he told me when we had lunch together. Herman Cain is a man who says he has represented Christ in all the things that he's done. Now, if that is true, and only God knows if that's true, but if that is true, then that standard of even not giving the appearance of evil, he failed that standard. It is almost inconceivable to me that a man like Herman Cain would make payments to a woman, apparently a significant amount of money that he admitted to, and never tell his wife about that. Never get her involved in that decision. He was giving his money, family money, to a woman that was not his wife. Dear people, all of those kinds of questions and issues are character issues. We are to be above reproach, another standard in the New Testament. Those kinds of issues are very important. And when they come out about a candidate for high public office, it is the public's business. It is important to get to the bottom and find out what is going on in this man's life because he's going to represent our country. He's going to represent us. That's what the president does. So in conclusion, I am concerned about Herman Cain. I'm concerned about his character. He has now ended his presidential campaign. And apparently and presumably, we will not see him involved in a national run for public office again, at least not now for president. So in conclusion, what should we do? Well, in my view and what my wife and I are doing, we should be praying for him, for his family, for his wife. It's very conceivable and quite probable that she is hurting as a result of this, She's found out some information about her husband, what's been going on these last 13 years, whether it was sexual or not. He was paying money to another woman. And all of this is something that indicates a character flaw. We should be praying for him, and especially, again, for his wife. This is a very difficult time for her, for the family, and for Herman Cain. God's forgiveness, God's grace, God's mercy, God's compassion is being showered upon Herman Cain. He is not immune to that, but he's got to deal with some of these issues, whatever their level of severity, whatever their level of importance. He has done some things that raise serious questions about his character. Only he can deal with them. But God's grace and God's mercy is sufficient. May he find his solace in God. May his wife find the encouragement, affirmation, and all that she needs to deal with in Jesus Christ as well. For Herman Cain and his family, Jesus Christ is the answer. May we pray for him, support him, 
encourage him, so to speak, in this very difficult time in his life and in the life of his family. You've been listening to Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective is a radio production of Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have any questions or comments, or you would like a written summary of today's program, write to Issues in Perspective, 1311 South 9th Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68108. You can also view a transcript and listen online at issuesinperspective.com. Join us next week for Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.